I've entitled this morning's message, That Great Shepherd. I told my husband it wasn't fair that I had to preach two Easter's in a row. <laughs> Easter is a big deal, you know, and a lot of pressure <laughs> has to be about Easter, about Christ. Now, we preach about Christ every week, but it just seems like on holidays, there has to be something extra. So I was like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to minister on? And he says, the Good Shepherd. Well, that's not Eastery. <laughs> that's not very Eastery, Lord. You sure about that? So I kept seeking the Lord. He kept pointing me back. No, the Good Shepherd. And I thought, okay, is the Good Shepherd really an Easter message? Is there a scripture that puts the Good Shepherd and the Easter message together, the resurrection? And actually I found one in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. It says this, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. One of the things I want to mention right now is the word perfect. The word perfect does not mean perfect. <laughs> it means actually to be thoroughly complete. And he's not talking here about our spirit man. We know that when we receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that our spirit and his spirit becomes one spirit, and it's not going to get any more perfect. Our spirit man is perfect. It's completely righteous. Our soul, however, is always in the process of being converted. We're always renewing our mind, bringing our mind, our will, and emotions into line with who we are in Christ. That is the process that he's talking about here, of being thoroughly complete, complete in our emotions, complete in our, our thinking, complete in our behavior. We want Christ to shine all the way through. And that's what he's talking about there when he says, make you perfect. Some translations say thoroughly equipped. That means whatever God calls us to do. And he calls us to live holy. He calls us to live in love. He calls us to follow after his spirit. He calls us to that. And he says, I'm praying that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you will become thoroughly equipped. That you are thoroughly equipped. You have everything you need to be able to walk this life. What we're going to look at is the, actually the first part, because that's the fruit of the first part of the scripture. The fruit is verse 21. The cause is verse 20. Christ in us bears the fruit. But what he wanted me to look at this morning is this particular phrase, that great shepherd of the sheep, to the blood of the everlasting covenant. All of these phrases, now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, to the blood of the everlasting covenant, are all intertwined. He's really making a complete message just in that one verse. Now, when you look at this phrase, that great shepherd, what I want to let you know, first of all, is that whenever we interpret Scripture, we have to interpret it within the context of who it was written by and who it was written to. Hebrews was written to Hebrews, to Jews, to Jewish believers and their families. So you could have believers and unbelievers all in one mix, but they all had Jewish backgrounds. That's why the book of Hebrews is written the way it is. The entire book of Hebrews is explaining to a Jewish believer the supremacy of who Christ is and what he's accomplished over what they had in the Old Testament. This was not easy for a Jewish person to receive Christ. It changed everything. 
part of the problem for the Jew was understanding how Jesus could be everything that the old system tried to accomplish. That Jesus could be all of the sacrifices, that Jesus could be all of the offerings, that he fulfilled all of it in his life. This idea of changing your mind about everything was really difficult for them. They wanted to keep one foot in Judaism and one foot in Jesus. It's like they weren't really quite sure because they were so indoctrinated. Being a Jew was who you were. It isn't just what you did. It was who you were. It affected how you ate. It affected how you went to the restroom. It affected everything you did in your day was affected by the law. And then suddenly now, in Christ, being the fulfillment of the law, they're going, you sure? <laughs> you sure he is all of that? Are you sure? And so the entire book of Hebrews, the author, who is himself a Hebrew, explaining to the Hebrews how much better Jesus is and the new covenant is over the past covenant. They didn't really understand the new creation reality. Now, today we might think, well, really, would it be that hard to change from being a Jew into being a Christian? Because there's a whole lot more freedom in Christ. You're not under that constant law, that constant taskmaster. That's it. it should be easier to do that. Why would that be so hard? Well, have you ever tried to change somebody's mind politically? To take a Democrat and try to tell them they need to be a Republican. How far do you get with that? <laughs> take a Republican and tell them how they should be a Democrat. How far are you going to get? Not very far. That's the kind of mindset that you had. They were so entrenched in Judaism that this new liberty in Christ was scary. It's like that story about the woman caught in adultery. If you don't stone her, then everybody's going to run out and commit adultery. That was their thinking. I need the law to keep me in line. Instead of understanding that under grace, love keeps us in line. We want to do that which is right and holy because now that's who we are. It's our identity. Under Judaism, they want to keep the law because that's who they are. I'm a Jew. I'm chosen. I'm God's holy people. This is who I am. It was their identity. So they had to have a whole new identity. That means they had to change everything they thought. It would be very much like a Republican becoming a Democrat. It's going to change every area of your life and how you see everything. It changes everything. And that was the dilemma of the author of Hebrews. One of the things they really struggled with was the whole idea of not being able to go to the temple and offer sacrifices while they believed in Jesus. If you think about that, those two things do not relate. If Jesus is the Passover lamb and no more lambs are needed, why would you want to go to the temple and offer lambs? Only one reason. You don't really believe what Jesus did accomplished what he said it did. So this was really hard for them. They were being told that because of this new covenant, the old way didn't even work anymore. In other words, they were trying to say, well, just in case Jesus doesn't really completely fulfill, this will cover my sin. It's a difference between being a Republican and a Democrat. You're on completely opposite sides of the aisle. It doesn't work. You can't bring those two together any more than we have success bringing Democrats and Republicans together. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You have two completely different ideologies. So... Not only was that hard for them, but one of the biggest and hardest things for them to let go of was Moses. 
Moses was their Messiah in a sense. Now they knew a Messiah was coming, but the way we think of Messiah, that's how big a deal Moses was. It would be like Obama to a Democrat. <laughs> you know, you're not going to pull him down and take him away, right? Because that's who you identify with. And so they identified all of their laws, all of their rules, even though they were from God, they identified them not so much with God, but with Moses. And then they identified Moses with God. So telling them they had to let go of even Moses was really hard. It would be like telling Democrats, you can't have Obama. You have to have a President Bush. It wouldn't go over well. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> so they had to change what they believed. And so the whole book of Hebrews is about a Hebrew trying to change a Hebrew's mind about Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you all of this because there are verses that we're looking at are at the very end of the book. And if you don't understand what the book theme is, you have to in interpret scripture within the theme of the context of the entire book. So that's why this morning is a little bit more like Bible study than just a message. One of the things he does is he goes through systematically and he explains to them through the whole book of Hebrews how Jesus is greater. He says Jesus is greater than the prophets. This is a big deal. Greater than prophets? Yeah. Because he isn't just a word from God. He is the word of God. He's greater than Moses because he's a faithful son, not just a faithful servant. He's a greater high priest because his work is completely finished and he sat down. Whereas the Old Testament priests never sat down because their work was never finished. There were always more sins to be covered by the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus has a greater priesthood than that of Aaron because it is based on the power of his indestructible life, not on the base of his physical lineage to Aaron. Jesus is greater because he mediates a better covenant based on better promises. Jesus has a greater most holy place because his most holy place was in heaven, not in a temple made by man's hands. And his sacrifice was greater because it was a complete sacrifice, thoroughly complete, one sacrifice for all sin, for all men, for all time. It was an eternal sacrifice with eternal blood. The greater blood of Jesus Christ, greater than any lamb, any bullock, because he was the one and only true and living Son of God who took away all sin. Took away sin. This was a whole new idea for a Jew. Took away sin? Old Testament, your sins were covered. They weren't counted against you. You were guilty, but covered. New covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ actually removes the sin and the guilt from you. Totally different concept. His sacrifice was so powerful that it wallowed up, if you will, all the sacrifices that had ever been. In fact, all of the sacrifices that had ever been were only good because of the one sacrifice that was coming. And it was a greater sacrifice because it was actually able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. A conscience that is clear brings peace. You see, if you know you're guilty, you're always going to feel guilty. If you know you're guilty, you're going to feel condemned. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can free us from that condemnation, knowing that what he did really does remove the sin from us. All of this is appropriated by faith and not by works. Again, totally different idea from the Old Covenant. 
The book of Hebrews expounds the greatness of who Jesus Christ is and his sacrifice and his power and his position at the right hand of the Father. But the author doesn't actually mention the resurrection until the end of the book. We celebrate it because it's the biggest celebration of the year, his birth and his resurrection. We celebrate his death all the time as well. He doesn't even get around to mentioning it until the end of the book. He does hint at it in chapter 7, in verse 16, where he tells us Jesus' priesthood is greater because it is based on the power of an indestructible life. He is an eternal priest of the order of Melchizedek forever. Why? Because he has an indestructible life. There will never be a new way to be right with God. There's only one way. So that brings us to our scripture. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, there's the resurrection, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd, that great shepherd of the sheep. That's what I want us to look at this morning. We have a Hebrew who's talking to a Hebrew. When a Hebrew talks to a Hebrew about the great shepherd, what is he thinking? Is he thinking Jesus Christ? Probably not. (laughs) When you say great shepherd, he's going to think the great shepherd of the Old Testament, which was Moses. In Isaiah 63.11, it says, And then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? And it doesn't mean within him in dwelling, but within the community. The Holy Spirit came upon them. The Holy Spirit was not in them. And verse 12 says, That led them by the right hand of Moses, with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them, to make himself an everlasting name. Here we see God is actually speaking, and he's talking about Moses as being the shepherd of his flock. And that is how the Jews looked at Moses as a great shepherd, because he was a leader. Shepherds were always leaders. They weren't necessarily sheep herders. But of course we know Moses was. He was a sheep herder for 40 years. In fact, the Jews have a legend about this. It went something like this. While Moses was watching his father-in-law's flocks, one of the lambs came up missing. So he went looking for it. And he searched high and low, and he found it a very great distance away. It had gone looking for water. And it had gone so far, it had become exhausted. So how the story goes is, he says, Oh, my little one, that is why you wandered away. You were so thirsty. But now you are so exhausted. He picks up the lamb, and puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it back home. And according to the legend, that's when the Lord God Almighty said, if this man is so compassionate toward the baby lamb, how much more will he be toward my people? He is qualified to be my shepherd. That is actually in their own commentaries, that that is the heart of Moses. You see the type and shadow? that Moses really was a type and shadow of the Christ, the great shepherd that would come. Moses even himself prophesied, though, of another great shepherd. In Deuteronomy 18.15, it says this, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. In other words, he's going to be a great shepherd too. The one who is to come will be a great shepherd as well. Unto him you shall hearken. So, A Jew would normally look unto Moses. Moses, though, points yet to another shepherd. There's another shepherd in the Old Testament that a Jew would probably think of. His name would be David. He also would qualify as a great shepherd. He was the shepherd boy who became king. 
he was so loved by the Lord and his people that God speaks of him prophetically as a type of Christ. In Ezekiel 34:23, it says this, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace. And the beginning of our scripture says, Now the God of peace. They understood they were looking for a shepherd who was going to bring peace and a new covenant. Now, David had long since been dead when this was written, approximately 450 years. So the Jews knew that David himself was only a type and shadow of the one who would come and fulfill this prophecy. So all of this points the Jewish reader to the coming Messiah. The Hebrews knew that there was, though, one more great shepherd in the Old Testament, God himself. In Isaiah 40, verse 10 and 11, says this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And he will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are with young. It goes on in Ezekiel to actually talk about himself again as the great shepherd, but he's showing contrast. He contrasts the bad shepherds <laughs> with himself. The bad shepherds would be those who are religious leaders in particular, who looked at the sheep, the people, as a means to make their lives better, and not as an opportunity to serve the sheep and make their lives better. So he draws this contrast in Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read a good deal of it, starting in verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel who do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Ye eat the fat, ye clothe you with wool, ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased ye have not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. For thus says the Lord God. This is him coming down now. Because he says, this is what's wrong <laughs> with the religious leaders. Let me tell you how I want it done. <laughs> For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a sheep seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And this is where he says it. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. So, a good shepherd to a Jew may have been Moses or David. But that great shepherd could only have been God himself. That's where he's leading him 
through the whole book of Hebrews to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is not only that great shepherd, but he is God himself. The scripture, of course, in Philippians bears this out. Philippians 2.5 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For a Jew to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, is for him to say, Jesus Christ is Jehovah. Jesus Christ is God. That's a big deal. That was a big deal for a Jew, and it should be, because it's coming to the realization, and it's usually only by revelation that we acknowledge the fact that Jesus really was God wrapped in flesh. I was watching a movie about Peter and the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples, and it showed the part on the night before he was died where he, Jesus came and washed their feet. And they were all appalled that Jesus would want to wash their feet. Why? Because those who are great do not humble themselves into low positions. They can't imagine that God would come and be a human. If they can't understand that a leader could be a servant, how can they understand that God would become human? It's the same metaphor. Those who are great are those who are humble. Those who are leaders are those who are servants. They couldn't wrap their mind around this. Moses didn't serve that way. David didn't serve that way. And now you're telling me God, my father, would come down to my level to minister to my needs? It was beyond understanding. Again, it takes revelation to understand that God so loved me that he became so he could stand before the Father and say, I know exactly how they feel. I know exactly what it is to be lonely. I know exactly what it is to, to be left, to be abandoned, to suffer the death of a loss of someone you love. He knew all of that. That's why he is a great high priest. Because he knows exactly what it is like to be wrapped in human flesh. Jesus is that great shepherd of the Old Testament. He is God. He is Jehovah. He is God wrapped in humanity. He is the God-man. He is the Good Shepherd. Jesus calls himself not the Great Shepherd, but the Good Shepherd. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Now he starts this dialogue about the Good Shepherd. It's actually about the religious leaders. The context is about 
three or four chapters long, and I won't make you read them. <laughs> but he's actually addressing religious leaders. When he talks about thieves and robbers, he's talking about these bad shepherds. Now, we know Satan is behind all evil, so yes, we can attribute the, these thieves to Satan. But he's actually talking about religion. Religion is trying to get into the sheepfold of heaven without going through Jesus Christ alone. Religion says, I can work my way up and over. Religion says, I can buy my way in. Religion says, I can be so good as to outbalance my bet that I will get in some other way. I can get in on my own merits. All religion is about working the way in to a position of favor. Jesus Christ, however, is the position of favor. When we come in through him, we're automatically in the position of favor. Now, because he had just went into this little dialogue with the Jews about healing a blind man on the Sabbath, and then, of course, the religious leaders all up in arms about him healing on the Sabbath, showing, again, that the religious leaders didn't care about the people. They only cared about their rules. That's religion. Religion says, we want the rules followed. We don't care what it costs, even if a man has to remain blind. How awful is that? So that's the context that Jesus is talking about. Are he talking about these thieves and robbers? Or are they actually the religious leaders? So he goes on, he says, okay, you didn't get that one, let me try again. <laughs> so Jesus says again to them, Truly I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now to understand that, you have to know about sheep. They stored their sheep at night in large pens. And they were called sheepfolds. And they were usually attached to the shepherd's house. A shepherd normally owned his own sheep. That's why he loved them so much. They didn't use sheep as food. They used sheep for wool. So they would have the same sheep for years and years and years. And they would get to know the sheep. They would give them names, you know, like, oh, that one's Henri. We'll call that one Henri. And that one's Frisky. We'll call him Frisky. And that one has, you know, a little spot on his ear. We'll call him Spotty. You know, <laughs> they named their sheep. They recognized the sheep by their peculiarities and their quirks and, and the way they looked. So, and every night when they brought their sheep in, they all had to go through this door. It wasn't like a huge opening where they drove sheep. You can't drive sheep. Sheep will not be driven. They will only be led. That's a good lesson for us. Religion drives. Jesus leads. <laughs> so, the shepherd would lead his sheep into the sheepfold every night and he would stop each one at the door and check them out to see what they needed before he let them go in and have rest. He looked to see, did you get a scrape? Did you hurt yourself today? What do you need? Did you get something in your eye? Sheep were completely defenseless. The only way sheep can survive is if they have a shepherd. They depend on their shepherd for everything. To take care of all of their bodily needs, to give them food and water and safety. That's the picture of us that we depend only on Christ for all that we need. Because we are more like dumb sheep than we would like to admit. <laughs> but he would stop them, and he would let them go in one at a time, and he would count them. He always counted his sheep to make sure that none were missing. Because if one were missing, he would go and search for it. So when he says, I am the door of the sheep, one, he stands at the door to meet all their needs. But when they took their sheep out at night, you know, for days at an end, so they could graze, there were pens out in the fields. And 
They were pens that were available to all shepherds and all flocks. And many times there would be many, many flocks all together. Now, the way they separated them was sheep will only follow their own shepherd. To this day, this is true. Sheep will not follow a voice they don't know. It frightens them and they turn away. You can put three or four giant flocks of sheep together and each shepherd will walk away from his flock because you can't drive them. You have to lead them and sing to their sheep and call out their names and they all come apart perfectly and separately because the sheep know their shepherd's voice. Jesus is that great shepherd and we do know his voice. We do know his voice and that's who we follow. But what they found is out in the large places out in the fields, there was no door. Because um, often the flocks would, you know, all together, so there would be no door. So what would happen is, after the shepherd would get all of the sheep in the pen, the shepherd himself would lay at the door to make sure that no beast and no robber could come in and steal. And Jesus says, I am the door. He's saying, I am the one who keeps you safe. I am the one that keeps out the evil. I am the one that makes sure that you are taken care of. I am the door. You come into me, but I also protect you in me. He is our protector as well. So he says to them, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, religious leaders. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved, healed, delivered and will go in and out and find pasture. This does not mean you go in and out of Jesus. <laughs> in Deuteronomy 28, it says you are blessed coming in, and you are blessed going out. And that's what he's talking about. Once we're in Jesus, we're all good, and they will find pasture. The thief, however, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, when shepherds, even to this day, over in the Middle East, shepherds often have to lay down their lives in order to protect their flock because their flock is their livelihood for themselves and their families. So David boasts that he killed a bear and a lion protecting the sheep. A very real reality. So when Jesus says, I am like that, I am a good shepherd, I will not let the enemy come in and scatter you. I will not let the enemy come in and devour you. But he's also saying, that he's even better than a good shepherd. You see, the normal shepherd doesn't lay down his life willingly. A normal shepherd will protect his flock because he's a family to take care of. But Jesus is one step better, if you will. You see, Jesus knew he would lay down his life, but he knew he couldn't leave his sheep without a shepherd. Remember, sheep only listen to the, the voice of their shepherd. If the shepherd dies, the sheep have to be retrained. They would be shepherdless and they would be open to destruction. Jesus says, I'm better than that. <laughs> Jesus is not like a regular shepherd who has his life taken from him. Jesus says, I'm going to lay my life down willingly, but I'm not going to leave you without a shepherd. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, religion. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Yay! Guess who the other sheep are? <laughs> we are the other sheep. This was offensive to a Jew. The Jews, the original plan of God was that he chose them to be his people. And he told them to be evangelistic. They were supposed to get converts. They were supposed to be the light in the darkness of the one true and living God. But what they got was self-righteous. We're the chosen. You're not. Stay out. You're unclean. Instead of bringing people into faith in the one true God. In fact, that's why after Christ comes, the only people, the, the new Christians who are Jews are telling are other Jews. They weren't going into all the world. They only wanted to tell other Jews because in their mind, only Jews deserve salvation. So when Jesus says, I have another fold, another flock that's going to come in, that wouldn't make a Jew very happy at all. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. To this day, there are Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah for the Gentiles. And they are waiting for their Messiah, for the Jews. What we've seen all through the scripture this morning is God said there will be one shepherd. One. It will be God himself. I have other sheep of that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. When I came to this scripture, I thought, What? Okay, we know the Father already loves Jesus. He doesn't love him because he lays down his life. But that's what it sounds like. And I was like, okay, Lord, help me with this one. And the Lord reminded me of an instance long time ago when my children's grandfather passed away. It was the first time um, our family had experienced the death of a family member. My oldest son was about seven at the time. It was difficult. And we went to church several days after we found out that Grandpa had passed. And my son was sitting on the front pew, and their dad didn't go to church at that time. He wasn't walking with Christ. And so I took my family to church by myself. And during the service, the pastor announces, family has lost their grandfather. Please pray for the, the family and the children. And when that was happening, my son was sitting at the front pew by himself. I was at the back of the church. And while I'm listening to this, I see this man who's sitting on this end of the pew. He's a family friend. His name is Frank. Love him. A brother in Christ. But what he did was he got up when he heard that announcement. It gets me every time. And he came down and he sat by my son. And he put his arms around him. And he told me, it's going to be okay. Grandpa's with Jesus. It's going to be okay. And we love you. It's going to be okay. My heart leaped with love for that man. You so love my lamb that you would go out of your way to minister to my lamb who's hurting? I can't help but love you more. That's the picture that God is talking about here, that Jesus is talking about. God the Father so loved us and knew that without a lamb, Without him becoming a man and ministering for the life of the sheep, that there was no way we could be saved. He's so loved that Jesus said, you, this is that important to you? 
Can you see them before the foundations of the world having this conversation? <laughs> okay, we're going to create man. He's going to fail. How are we going to fix it? God says, I so love them. I don't want them to be lost. I don't want them to be destroyed. How do we remedy it? And Jesus says, because you so love, I so love, I volunteer. The father's heart goes, you love so much, I can't help but love you more. <laughs> That's what's going on here. Is he says, my father loved me, yes. But because I have my father's heart, because I'm willing to do this, my father is exploding with love for me because this is such a great sacrifice that God himself would become a human for all of eternity. That the Logos, Jesus Christ, would become a man for all of eternity. He would be wrapped in flesh. God wrapped in flesh. Just like us. It just made the Father's heart leap. It goes on and it says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I received from my Father. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice. Unlike a natural shepherd whose life can be taken from him, Jesus decided he would be the great shepherd and actually become a man. He would become a sheep. And he would give his life as a sacrifice. The good shepherd willing to become the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But he didn't stop there. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, he would not be saved. He had to pick up his life. He had to prove that he was that great shepherd. God himself. That his sacrifice was as effective as he says it was. That it really did take away sin. If Jesus Christ had sin that remained, he'd be dead to this day. The proof that he is who he says he is is that he rose from the dead. Death only has the ability to keep in death that which is sinful. Because Christ had no sin of his own, but was only a sin bearer. That's why he could be raised from the dead. He said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to pick it up. And he proved it by doing it. Romans 1.4 says this, tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection of the dead. All of his miracles did not declare him the Son of God. It is that fact that he rose from the dead that proves he is who he says he is and he did what he said he would do. The resurrection was the evidence of the Father's acceptance of the blood of the Lamb as sufficient to pay the penalty for death for all mankind. Our great shepherd became the Lamb so that the Lamb would be forever our shepherd. Revelation 7.17 says this, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The shepherd became a lamb, so that the lamb would forever be our shepherd. I believe that the author of Hebrews was saying to the Hebrew readers that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies that we looked at, that he is that great shepherd. The great shepherd that the nation of Israel looked for God himself, that he is the great shepherd called David, who would bring an everlasting covenant of peace 
that he is that great shepherd who thoroughly completes and thoroughly equips us, not from the outside, but from the inside. This morning we celebrate that great shepherd of ours, the Lamb of God. We celebrate his death, his burial, but most of all, his resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would be no proof that he was who he said he was. It is the seal that says Jesus is God. He rose from the dead, and he has accomplished an everlasting peace and an everlasting covenant. This morning we're going to participate in communion. As we do, I want you to remember the Lamb. The Lamb who gave his life. The Lamb who sits on the throne to this day. The Lamb who is risen is the Lamb who sits on the throne of our hearts and will sit on the throne in eternity forever. In 1 Corinthians 11.23 it says this, The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. Thank you, Father, for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Thank you and we celebrate. You are the risen. 